0: Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Dr. Hostenstein, Neil Pollack, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a fine show for you this week. We're going to talk to my fellow Sea of Reads Media audio hopper podcaster, Philip Ferkazi, about his show, The Dark Word, which appears on Book and Film Globe every week. And we're going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn about the new Kids in the Hall episodes that are airing on Amazon Prime. A reboot of the classic 90s sketch comedy show is back and it is still very funny. But first, we're going to talk about abortion. I know you're like, wow, I can't wait to listen to Neil Pollock talk about abortion. But we're going to talk to Paula Schaefer our book and film globe contributor about a piece she wrote this week about the history of how television deals with abortion and unwanted pregnancies it'll be entertaining i promise we'll we'll cover it from a a book and film globe perspective it won't be too heavy it won't be overtly ideological please don't turn us off please don't cancel us we'll be right back after this delightful musical interlude Abortion is back in the news. Aren't you glad? Aren't we lucky to be screaming at one another about abortion on social media 24 hours a day, seven days a week? We decided to take uh, our own approach to talking about abortion on Book and Film Globe. Uh, Paula Schaefer wrote a piece about the history of abortion and unwanted pregnancies on TV, and she's here to talk to me about it. Hello, Paula.
1: Hey, Neil. How are you doing?
0: I'm good. Well, we should probably call it. What do they call it? In knocked up, mortion or more I hated that movie. The way they they refused to say the a word when they were trying to talk about uh, getting rid of Katherine Heigl's pre- pregnancy. Yeah,
1: shmoshmortion. Yeah, something. Like we're
0: not going to say that. We're going to say the word abortion here. And you wrote a piece. Uh, talking, it wasn't like, it wasn't a history of, you know, abortion episodes on TV, because those are kind of few and
1: far between. They are. There's actually a database that tracks every abortion on screen every year. And then they do reports comparing like the statistics of here's how many there were on screen and here's how many portrayed this and that. And I did not want to write a like scientific journal entry about data related to abortion at all. How many
0: abortions on screen are there
1: a year? In 2021, there were 47 of them, um, 47 plot lines with 42 TV shows. That's that's a lot. Yeah, that's like a a step up from previous years. That's only like one one-hundredth of all
0: TV shows, keep in mind.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And most of them are just the, oh, no, we're we're white teens and we're pregnant or, you know, we're white people and we're pregnant. Let's just mention that that's an option and then not actually carried out.
0: Right. Well, you, you that's the problem with this subject matter is, you know, you don't want to alienate potentially 60 percent of your audience. Correct. <laughs> but by, by saying we're going to, you know, we're going to celebrate abortion or we're going to Presented as as a legal option, but you didn't take that tack in in your piece. You sort of talked about different ways that TV has dealt with it throughout history. You know, obviously, it go the the first real mention of this as a subject was on maud most famously. I mean, you and I remember maud you know, but kind of, but, <laughs> kinda. yeah. I wasn't <laughs> even old enough to watch to be I mean, it was on when I was alive. It's still a, sort of as a. a is a data point. But I realize now, like, you know, in a world where like the Jeopardy contestants can't even name the actors who played Crockett and Tubbs on the original Miami Vice, Maud, Maud might be kind of a dated reference at this point. So you move up forward in time to uh, Shonda Rhimes shows seem to uh, tackle this quite a bit.
1: Yeah. She kind of stepped it into the, like, often abortion on TV is about the side character who had it done some other time and brings it up it's never like the main person because um, we don't want them to not root for the the person they they love so it's usually just like oh he found out the dark secret his girlfriend had was an abortion 20 years ago oh my but then Shonda Rhimes was like no let's have main characters do it and on uh Grey's Anatomy Christina Yang had an abortion it was very matter of fact like I don't want kids oh my partner doesn't really want me to have an abortion but I do so I'm gonna and that is kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways
0: also the main character on Scandal uh had an abortion as well that's also Shonda Rhimes show
1: correct yeah uh that that definitely starts shifting the lens because we have Oh, women of color having abortions. I mean, uh, true. They're like high professional affluent single women in ridiculous situations. You know, like she's, preg- she's the president's mistress and pregnant with his baby and on and on, but still it's showing like here are independent women making choices.
0: Very relatable, um, <laughs> highly relatable. It's um, network TV. What do you expect? Uh, on the other hand, you know, th- what, what, what I thought was interesting about your piece and what you pointed out is that, you know, unwanted pregnancy isn't always about abortion on TV. You know, the most sort of prominent unwanted pregnancy really in TV history, let's face it, because this was a very popular program, was uh, was on Jane the Virgin.
1: Yep. Where yep.
0: Our, our heroine, who is a virgin, is artificially inseminated in the pilot.
1: Yep. <laughs> And her mother, you know, a few seasons into the show, the mo- the mother was a, was a teen mom who chose not to have an abortion due to, you know, being Catholic and she gets pregnant with kind of a, a one-off, one-night stand sort of deal and she decides she will have an abortion and there's pushback from her daughter and there's pushback from her mother and then she actually does it. She doesn't decide at the end like, oh no, I need to be a mother some more. She still goes through with it and they still respect each other. They support each other, you know, they kind of agree to disagree and live with each other's choices and move forward as a family unit that still loves and cares and respects each other. It's very excellently portrayed.
0: Well, and that's the thing, right? We all kind of need to respect one another's choices when it comes to this subject. It's so, uh, such a, you know, heavy political football. And I feel like, as you point out, Jane the Virgin was really good at, at bridging the gap because, you know, because the main character did keep her baby, right? Her unwanted baby.
1: Yep, she sure did. And then her mother did not.
0: Right. And she presented it, uh, the keeping of the baby as as a moral choice, right? Absolutely. Based off of her Catholic upbringing.
1: Yes, and her extreme faith in the sanctity of life and, you know, the usual talking points from people who have that religious stance.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for some people, it's not even talking point. I mean, for some people, it's talking points, you know, for some politicians, it's talking points. For other people, it's like a... It is literally a uh, a moral code, and for other people, the right to choose how to control your own body is a moral code. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, given that, like, I feel like the abortion debate is even more heated than ever, that both sides are now sort of exhibiting sort of violent tendencies. Um, where in the past it was kind of the right that was bombing abortion clinics. I'm wondering, like, what you know, what is a, a, a safe path? For uh, depicting and talking about this on TV, where we're not like you know celebrating abortion, but we're also not condemning it.
1: Yeah, that that's why shows don't tackle it very often because that's a lot of uh, social mores to try to cover and respect and wrangle and juggle in forty-five minutes.
0: Really, much much better off uh, just chronicling a young girl's adventures in Paris. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Way better, <laughs>
0: so, or just like a, a space opera. I would like a nice space opera.
1: Oh, absolutely. Who doesn't want that?
0: You know, there are just so many different ways to attack this. So, I, um, have there been any recent depictions of uh, the abortion debate on screen that you think have been partic- particularly effective?
1: I mean, not that I have seen that. I was like, wow, this is this is really powerful and impactful, and this. Makes a lot of sense, and this feels real in the midst of this outlandish setting. They found this thing that feels real. Usually, it goes kind of back to the tried and true. Let's speak about it. Let's move on. You know, we'll never talk about lack of access. We'll never talk about the afterwards. Let's just mention it, move on, and that's probably going to continue. Except, you know, as, as things are going now, when the the dirty dancing story becomes more of our reality. We, we
0: don't talk about Bruno's <laughs> abortion. No. <laughs> That's
1: right. We don't no, talk no. about Bruno's abortion. No,
0: no, no. <laughs> All right. Paula Schaefer, thanks for writing a great piece for us. Thanks for talking to me about the unmentionable topic of schmusmorsion here on the podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Scary monsters.
0: We have a special guest on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast this week. It's my fellow audio hopper, Sea of Reads Media podcaster, Philip Fikazi, here to talk about his podcast that he's doing for us every week, The Dark Word. Hello, Philip. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah, of course. So this is like, uh, it's like when... uh, Dick Cavett appeared on Johnny Carson, or when Tina Fey appeared on Jimmy Fallon, or I don't know when um, the guy from Bob Hart's Abashola went on Stephen Colbert. You know, this is we're yeah. cross promoting along right. the network. You you've been doing this um, this great uh, show for us, The Dark Word, uh, where you interview. i say mostly horror writers, right?
2: Yeah, horror writers, thriller writers, uh, yeah, editors. Um, you know, the the show is focused on um it's for you know essentially for writers so uh any anyone that has something to say about the craft of writing uh is is welcome for sure
0: well you know i feel like you know that that horror and thriller writers are, are not underrepresented in terms of book readers or book sales but they are somewhat underrepresented i think in book media which tends to really um focus heavily on um literary writers i mean there's a, young adult uh, authors have their own their own network but i feel like genre writers particularly the kinds of genre writers you are talking to don't tend to get a lot of attention in that way
2: yeah i think horror writers for sure uh, have to you know definitely are on the fringe um you know but a few of the guys i've been talking to are new york times bestsellers you know like s.a. cosby who wrote a wonderful book called Razor Blade Tears. I had Joe Lansdale on uh, recently. I don't think his episode is, is quote unquote, aired. You know, I, I like to talk to writers who explore dark topics. And um, so I kind of leave that open to, like, you know, anyone from mystery writers or thriller writers. But but I do like the horror writer community, so I tend to focus on those guys.
0: Right. Now, do you I mean, did you feel like they were underrepresented or was there something about the community that wasn't being expressed in media that – Made you decide to start doing this, or is this just an excuse for you to talk to your friends and colleagues and, and, and to ha- have a have a little uh you know have a little leverage on them? I know that's why I do a, I do this show is so I can I can have a, have a leg up right. on, on my peers.
2: Right, right. I'll have you on this show, but you got to blurb me. Yeah. Uh, no, it's you, you know it's um I listen to a lot of podcasts, and whenever I listen to a podcast about writing, I feel like I have to go through. 30 minutes of hearing about a writer's childhood and, you know, their beliefs and their dreams. And then there's like these little kernels of like magic where they talk about writing and they talk about the publishing business and they talk about agents or contract, stuff that matters to me being a writer. And so what I said was, I would love to have a podcast where it was just about writing. And it was like all things having to do with, you know, writing and editing and what it's like to have an agent or how do you get an agent and how do you work, you know, what's it like working for a big five and what, what what's, you know, what's the behind the scenes that would really help a new writer? So that was really the the gist. And I think I just focused on, you know, horror writers and, and thriller, you know, dark thriller writers, because, yeah, those are my homies, right? That's my, like, I write horror, so I know all those guys. It's interesting that you mentioned the underrepresentation thing, because I do think they have some interesting perspective that other writers might not have, because one of the things we focus on is, like, what's it like publishing with like an indie press versus like a big five press. And I think horror writers in particular do a lot more of that starting with smaller presses and then evolving into bigger presses versus I think to your point, a lot of literary writers who just appear out of nowhere and they're in the New Yorker and they're, so it was interesting to talk about the journey with a lot of these writers about starting kind of scrappy and indie and then, you know, like a band that breaks big you know, talking about, you know, what it's like to now be with like a big five publisher, for example.
0: I've, d- I've done it all myself. I, I I broke small, then I broke big, then I broke small, then I self-published, then I went and worked with Amazon and then I broke to really, <laughs> really small. You know, I was like, I, I, there's no rhyme or reason to my own publishing career. You know, right. my, my, my next novel is coming out, um, in, in June and it's a print on demand from, uh, a conservative imprint of a, that has a partnership deal with a big publisher. I, it, it makes no sense given that I started with probably the most liberal publisher in the United States and myself, I'm like politically kind of like, you know, neutral. There are no rules for me, but it, it, it is interesting to hear other writers and their paths through it. You know, I, and I did, I published with a, with a, with a thriller and with a sci-fi imprint as well. There's a lot of yeah. There's just a lot of different ways uh, you can go, and your show highlights that there is no one clear path for a writer to take. Right. Uh, for their career, my feed still, when it comes to writers, there, I, I do have some genre writers in my feed, but I but I see a lot of people who are still like thrilled to be reading at books and books in Coral Gables, int- <laughs> being introduced by Don DeLillo. Blah blah blah. I'm like right. Listen, it's just not how it is. <laughs> right, right. It's just not how it is for most of us, you know?
2: Yeah, I think to your point, it's um, everyone's journey is unique. And I think that's kind of one of the things I try and emphasize on the show is um, because when I started, I got a lot of, you know, slack from kind of established writers who were like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And I was like, what are you talking about? This makes This makes total sense to me. And then, for example, I was like, I want to I published with a very micro press and I published like a, you know, a, for not a lot of money. But in my mind, you know, I have sort of a, you know, a music marketing background and I'm like, well, no, this is how you, this is one of the ways at least you do it is you get your name out there, you build readership, you create awareness. And then your next book, you try to do that even more so and your next book, you try and do it. And that's how you grow a brand as a, you know, quote unquote. And, but they were all like, oh no, you have to start at the top and you you can't take a little bit of money. You have to take a lot of money. And I'm like, well, I don't have that kind of opportunity. So I think, and it's also, also, there's also that element of like, what do you as an individual want to get from your writing career? Like, what are your goals? And your goals might be totally different than my goals or somebody else's goals. So so, yes, yeah, so in the show I try to explore, here's all, the, and, you know, here's all the ways these variety of writers, we've had a, you know, different levels of success. Some of them are New York Times bestsellers. Some of them are, you know, still on the indie scene, you know, how they've gone about their business and, and how they've created their own versions of success. And so, yes, yeah, so hopefully it helps out, you know, people who don't really know the ropes and don't really know where to start
0: and how, you know, how to, how to build a, a roadmap for their own career. Well, uh, for the vast majority of us, uh, money is mediocre at best. You know, the goal, right? At best, the yeah. goal is is just to continue to publish in whatever form you can, and to find whatever audience you can try to find. And that's that's kind of the way I'm operating at this point. Like I, I have um kind of given up my dreams. Of, <laughs> oh, good. No, I, I mean my dreams of like <laughs> being at the top of the pyramid. <laughs> you know, right. What I haven't done is given up my dreams of being a professional writer because I still am that. Right. And I was somewhat spoiled by the fact that like my first book got a lot of attention, uh, back 20 something years ago was, you know, reviewed full page in the New York Times book. Aren't you you on like Dave Dave Letterman or something? No, I wasn't. I was on the daily show with Jon Stewart in 2003. And that was for my third book. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know that was like a book. I got a six figure corporate advance for that book, which is which sold four thousand copies, right. and uh, and then and then I got a, a six figure advance for my next book, which sold ten thousand copies, and that was the end of the six figure advance. <laughs> They're like, we're gonna stop flushing money down the Pollock toilet now. We're gonna we're gonna he's gonna scrounge for pennies for for the rest of his life. And that, you know what? And it's fine. I'm fine with it. I was upset for a while, and I'm like, you know what? I have I have lived a a rich and lively career as a writer. I've seen it all, um, and you know, and, and your show is a good example of you know you're you're presenting a wide range of possibilities for people who are looking to get into this gig. Yeah, and it's interesting because
2: you know a couple of the people I talk to have very their goals are you know. And it's it's a, it's a it's a great case in point is that you know your goal is to be a professional writer. My goal personally is to have a to make enough money so that I can just continue to write every day and not have to worry about going uh, back to my day job of ordering toilets and dumpsters for a living. And some, some people want something different. Like I was talking to um, a New York Times bestseller, Al Makatsu, who's who's a very good writer, uh, has created uh, written a bunch of you know kind of come hot on the scene the last five or six years. And she talked very candidly about how the ideas for her books are crafted by this sort of agency who, who come up with packages, these ideas that are for film and TV. And then she writes the novelizations and the, and then these guys are already out there selling the film rights. You know, she's more about, I want to kind of be making big bucks doing film and TV adaptions of these books. There's a lot of different, you know, ways to get there. And there's a lot of people have a lot of different um, things they want to achieve So, yeah, so to your point, I just try and talk to each of these individuals um, and say, you know, what are your goals? What were your first experiences like? And how did you get there? And, you know, what have you learned along the way? Because, you know, let's pass that information along to writers who maybe have had not experienced it um, so that they can learn from your mistakes or your successes.
0: What I've learned is that the world of publishing and entertainment are hypocritical and evil. And that really the only thing you can do, the only thing you can hope to do is just stay afloat and keep, keep getting your your stuff out there and hope you can find an audience. I've long since given up any realistic dreams of like mainstream success. And, you know, it's been kind of liberating, honestly. Yeah, I can
2: totally buy that. And it's, and again, it comes down to like, is that the kind of stuff that you're, that you want to write? And is that the kind of stuff that, you know, and it's like, I have a, I have an agent who, um, Presses me a lot to do stuff that's really quote unquote commercial because he's had some success selling some of my stuff for, for that film and TV world, you know, and he and I kind of go back and forth on it. Cause I, I push back cause I'm like, that's not, you know, what I re- want to do. I don't want to just come up with hooks. I want to write, I want to, you know, I'm a writer and, and I enjoy the, the craft of writing like very much. And it's important to me that it be sort of like, you know, this honest thing, but you know, but some writers just do that. Some writers just pump out Pitches like like hook after hook after hook after hook. So yeah, so I think it's everyone has their own way of doing things and what they want to write and what they don't want to write and what interests them and what doesn't interest them. And um, and that's what makes literature great, right? Is that it covers everybody. You know, there's a wide
0: spectrum of voices
2: uh, for readers, and that's that's the way it should be.
0: Right on. Well, Philip Furcazi hosting the Dark Word podcast every week. We publish the the work on Book and Film Globe, and like this show, it also appears on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Philip, keep up the good work and thank you for being part of the Book and Film Globe, Audio Hopper, Sea of Reads Media, uh, literary family. <laughs> thank you, y'all. I appreciate it. It's all about family, just like in Fast and Furious. Yes. <laughs> I get to be Vin Diesel. Uh, no, I get to be Vin Diesel. You can be Tyrese. <laughs> I'll take Tyrese. <laughs> all right, Philip, thank you so much. Thank you. These are the days I know, I know. These are the days I know. These are the days I know, I
2: know, these are the days I know. Some of them are Davids. But most of us are Daves. They all have their own hands, but they come from different moms <laughs> These are the days I know, I know,
0: these are the days I know. These are the days I know I know. These are the days I know. Dave Jadisky man. An ongoing theme wins. in our culture and on this program is that nothing ever dies culturally. Everything can be rebooted. Twin Peaks came back. Beverly Hills 90210 came back. Everything is due for a reboot. And that includes, surprisingly and amazingly, The Kids in the Hall, which was a popular late-night uh, sketch comedy show out of Canada that ran from 1989 to 1995, otherwise known as the glory years of my youth. I, I enjoyed that show greatly, and I you know watched it in reruns and have certainly revisited sketches on YouTube here and then, but now it's back. The kids in the hall are back, and they have a, a new series of episodes on Amazon Prime, and they are no longer kids. They These are, uh, at this point, somewhat decrepit, uh, very late middle-aged men from Canada, and Rachel Llewellyn is here to talk to me about the new Kids in the Hall show. Hello, Rachel.
3: Hi, Neil. Thanks for speaking with me today.
0: I, I'm actually the one who wrote about uh the kids in the hall reboot on the site because I was I was a fan, but I knew that you also were very familiar with this material. And so we both watched some kids in the hall now, some new kids in the hall. And you know, I I gotta admit, I was sitting on my couch all day cracking up, you know, <laughs> laughing, laughing my ass off. Not at every sketch. Not everyone was a huge winner, but there there were moments where I was I had to pause the TV because I was laughing so hard. I don't know if you had the same reaction.
3: I did. I really did for for a lot of the sketches. It it took us back, but it's also giving us some some new stuff. Um, they're they're definitely leaning into their middle age, and I was certainly excited to get a chance to see it again. Um, yeah, I I thought it was great. What what did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean it's really good. I mean they're here, like you said they're leaning into their middle age, right? they in the f- very first episode. There's a sketch where they all play I mean they're they're just basically playing themselves but they're all strippers at a strip club <laughs> and all these young women are hooting and hollering and throwing loonies at them and you know it's like they're strippers but the but Kevin McDonald has to have his wife come up on stage and help him unzip his tracksuit um you know Bruce, Bruce McCulloch is like slapping his enlarged prostate I love the um the lap dance where uh, the guy like all he does when he gets this hot young woman in the lab nets is he shows her how all the different remotes work you know yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah they've always been pretty self-deprecating and it's funny watching them kind of skewer themselves too it's it's interesting seeing them come back 30 years later and interact in so many of the same ways that we're used to seeing them i mean a lot went on behind the scenes and the evolution of this troupe and this kind of comedy phenomenon there was a lot that went on when they were making the series that was, you know, there's a lot of contention and kind of behind the scenes drama and, Apparently, with this reboot, they've buried the axe and kind of become older and wiser and kind of settled into something of a rhythm with each other. And I think that their rapport, it works just as well as it did um, in the early 90s, you know, initially. Yeah,
0: yeah they're, they're not washed up. I mean, they are. That's the funny thing is they're balding, they're flabby, they're wrinkled, they're gray. I mean, they look like shit. I mean, they look, they look normal they look normal for guys, you know, that age, but, you know, compared to the sort of fresh faced young goofballs that were on the original show, they can, they look like shit and they just lean into it. I mean, that, 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 hilarious, that hilarious sketch where Bruce McCullough um, takes his nineties Barca lounger to a vintage car. So yes. <laughs> drives it to a vintage car show.
3: Yes. exactly. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, you've got the buddy Cole skit where he's, you know, this kind of sort of uh, raconteur, Barfly, cosmopolitan kind of guy returns and tours his old haunts with his, you know, young young bartending companion.
0: This chicken, yeah.
3: Yes, exactly. And there's a skit with Kathy and Kathy saying farewell to fax machines. And so there's definitely these nods to the fact that they've moved on. But as far as you know, they've been around. They've been doing projects, not just Kids in the Hall stuff since it came out, and they have been, you know, since. Gosh, it, it went off the air in 1995. They did Brain Candy in 96, which was where a lot of kind of the contention sort of came to a head. And they've been doing reunion tours, gosh, every several years. Yeah, I mean,
0: I've, I've seen them. I've seen uh, Scott Thompson and Kevin McDonald perform stand-up in Austin. Uh, you know, Dave Foley obviously had a very successful TV career. It's not like these guys aren't like they're not poverty stricken losers or anything.
3: Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I yeah Mark that, McKinney was great on Superstore. Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, but by, by, these are all very successful guys by any stretch of the imagination. But it's just funny to see. I mean, the show is really smart. I mean, it's not all just middle aged humor. There's still some dating comedy. There's still office comedy. You know, the devil is still shows up here and there. You right. know, the, the the crushing your face guy makes a very I'm very clever how they use him actually in in, in the show. Um, it doesn't appear in the most obvious way you'd think of, but there's just a lot of like morbid middle aged man humor, you know. Yeah. And I just, as a middle aged man, I'm not quite as old as these guys, but I'm you know I'm within I'm within range of what they're what they're getting at. You know, I I, I really appreciated a, 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 a sketch comedy show that leaned into it.
3: Right, and I picked up on that too with like the underground bunker DJ playing the uh, Melanie song over and over. I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. Yeah. You've got a brand new key. Yeah, it's, That was grim. It's uh, Yeah, it, it is, and I appreciate the fact that they incorporate those sort of undercurrents that flow behind a lot of comedy. They describe them, they say, you know, we look in the mirror and we're shocked, but we're still the same angry 20-something-year-old comedians, and I like that description because they you know they're not afraid to say look we were contentious with each other and i think that they're able better to interplay and kind of play off each other comedically because they're willing to acknowledge and integrate those those themes as well and when you watch, they're, they're on these late-night circuits now. They're doing all these interviews. I mean, there's five people there, and they interplay, and the rhythms are, are great. They don't speak over one another, and they're really good at playing off one another, so their relationship is is clear. But they, they do acknowledge that they're like a family. They love and fight like one, and, and I like that that's reflected in their comedy.
0: Honestly, Rachel, i got to admit, like, I'm kind of shocked at how good it is.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you when it originally came out, you know, the drag comedy and a lot of the themes uh, uh, might not translate as well um when you watch it in this context but i think that they wrote that line very well it did incorporate a lot more gore and nudity <laughs> than i think a lot of fans might be a little <laughs>
0: yeah there is a there, there's that the scene where the shakespeare bust like loses its guts and um <laughs> and there there is a, oh well yeah there's the, the very first sketch you know, two of the characters got, there's just like full frontal nudity. And I'm like, yeah, so brace
3: yourself. I'm like, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm like, those are old man dicks. And I'm just yeah. like, you know, and, and I was just like, all right, well, this is yeah. where we're going to be. Well, you know, it's on. It's on Amazon. It's not even on a basic cable, right? It's on streaming. So there are no, there are no limits, but it's not like, you know, I, I wouldn't say every sketch is hard. R. you know, there's definitely some stuff that plays more PG. For 30, sure. It's, 13.
3: it's a mix. It's a cocktail.
0: It's a mix, but it's, it's like, it's shockingly
3: successful. I agree. I think it works. There were a few like pretty good laugh out loud moments where I, I, I mean the wigs are better. The comedy is just as good. Same humor, better wigs. All right, the,
0: the one that got me, the sketch that like had me like literally screaming with laughter on my couch where I had to pause it was the ambublance Sketch where Mark Mark McKinney plays like an old guy like chasing his grandson around the yard, (laughs) kind of like Vito Corleone in The Godfather, and he has a cardiac event, and he and he can't get the word out, so he has his grandson call. He says ambulance, and the grandson has no idea what he's talking about, so he calls nine one one. He says I need ambulance, and the nine one (laughs) one operators call (laughs) this. children's entertainment troupe called Ambulance. <laughs> they show up and they and they and they you know, they get they arrive and they start singing this goofy song. I mean it's <laughs> it
3: just killed me yeah there are definitely some some giggly moments it's there was um gosh what was that one scene that I loved the darling little pie that was like a remake of one of their original skits and that's one thing I like about kids in the hall they just skewer fine dining skewer corporate culture and they just kept doing it here so they kind of did an update on the on the uh, fine dining skit where all the chefs are in the kitchen debating on whether to burn down the entire restaurant because someone called a tart, a pie,
0: a tart, a pie. Yeah. And then also I, I, you know, I liked the the dating sketch where the, the guy had an imaginary girlfriend and then his neighbor was imagining that he was having an affair with the imaginary girlfriend. And they, made the, <laughs> they made the imaginary girlfriend choose between them trying to imagine <laughs> exactly. which which one they would, it was, I mean, I was like, <laughs> it's just, just, it was just very well done. The whole thing is really successful. And I highly recommend that you watch this Kids in the Hall reboot, particularly if you are a man of a certain age or a person. Let's say a, per- a person of a certain age. As Kids in the Hall prove, gender doesn't really matter. You can be a man and dress like a woman, be a woman dressed dress like a man. It's still funny.
3: It's hilarious.
0: Rachel, thanks for sharing. Good to talk to you.
3: Thanks for having me. <laughs> All
0: right, I'm crushing your head. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rachel. Kids in the Hall, now airing on Amazon Prime. Tune in, it'll be like watching TV at 1.30 in the morning on a Saturday back in 1995. That was my favorite time to watch TV. Well, any time is my favorite time to watch TV. I love watching TV, which is why I'm a good host for this show and a good editor for Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much, much more. Thanks again to Rachel Llewellyn, to Paula Schaefer, and to my fellow Sea of Reads Media audio hopper podcaster, Philip Forkazi, for joining me on this week's show. We'll be back next week with more steaming hot streaming content. We will talk to you soon. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App
2: Store.